there had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Duran Duran, uh-huh, a flock of seagulls. These bands are often jeered, but there's more to New Wave than skinny ties, cheesy synths, and bad haircuts. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We take a trip back in time to the mad world of New Wave. And then we review a new album from an artist that took us from the New Wave 80s into the 90s, Sinead O'Connor. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and we're going to be devoting a chunk of this show, Greg, to the New Wave 80s. I will confess, in the 80s, my first band was a group called The Interns. We were very New Wave. I had skinny <laughs> leather tie that I wore, and we covered two Flock of Seagull songs. I ran, and uh, uh, the other one, and the Romantics. But we, we, we were a little inconsistent, though. We also covered Rush's 2112. That's coming up in the show, the best of the New Wave. But first, some music news. Greg, I know you've been holding your breath waiting for that. That is a song called Shake It Off, first single from the next album by Taylor Swift. Record's not out till October 27th. But Miss Swift, who is all of 24, is a genius at marketing and using new platforms to get the word out there to her fans that she has music coming. Recently, she did a talk show-type presentation streamed live by Yahoo announcing that this album was coming. The video is out there on the online music service Vivo. She's also answered questions on Instagram, Skype, and Twitter from her fans. The record's going to be called 1989. That's for the year of her birth. I think she's being even more imaginative in the marketing than she was in 2012 for Red, where she relied on a lot of corporate help advertising with Target, Walgreens, and Papa John's Pizza. But she's not the only one looking at new ways to get the word out about new music. Yeah, it's uh, highly orchestrated invasions of the marketplace that we're talking about here. You know, Taylor Swift and Ariana Grande also hitting the pop charts in a big way in the, in the coming week. My Everything, her new studio album is out. It's her second album. She's ushering it in with a number one single earlier this year, A Problem with Iggy Azalea. And then at the MTV Music Awards, which really aren't an award show at all, but just a big promotional effort by who's ever <laughs> performing that day, she's going to try to own that night and the subsequent days with a appearance with the rapper Nicki Minaj and the singer Jessie J. The three of those women are going to then appear in an ad, two ads, not one, but two ads for a digital music service in which they will essentially advertise the new Ariana Grande video for Bang Bang. now has three songs in the iTunes Top 10 already, and the album is still not out yet. It'll, it'll be out in a few days, but everybody in the world 
is going to know about it, according to Ariana Grande's marketing managers. Greg, another artist announcing some new music coming in some very strange but interesting ways is Richard D. James, and we would accept no less from the man better known as the Aphex Twin. Pioneer in the early 90s of what has come to be called electronic dance music, although his soundscape universes were really in a different realm. It's been 13 years since he uh, dropped a proper album, and then uh, two years since he, he had anything on his Twitter account, he announces in a tweet that a new disc is coming. Then he floats a blimp over London and stencils a mysterious message outside a Radio City Music Hall in New York. The press release for this album, which is called S-Y-R-O, is released only on the deep web with a complete track list. And I didn't even think the deep web existed. I thought that was something like in Matrix and 24 on TV. But leave it to Richard James, Aphex Twin, to, uh, to, to be so cryptic about his forthcoming sounds. Speaking of cryptic, Jim, I think a lot of people may describe Bob Dylan's career in that way. This is a man of many mysteries, and in 1967, the holy grail for a lot of Dylanologists is the basement tape sessions with the future members of the band in Woodstock, New York, when Dylan was on his famous hiatus from the recording industry. The basement tapes, of course, came out in the early 70s, uh, finally, but there are many, many, many unreleased recordings and apparently many, many unreleased songs from those sessions. So now T-Bone Burnett is going to dive in and, and take a crack at some of the unreleased stuff from those sessions. He's going to take uh, lyrics from Dylan songs written during this period and put them out as Lost on the River, the new basement tapes. T-Bone playing and producing on a session that will also include Elvis Costello, Jim James of My Morning Jacket, Marcus Mumford of Mumford and Sons, a member of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and a member of Dawes. So it's interesting that Dylan's not involved in this in, in any way other than to give his approval for these songs to finally be put to music. Let's ask our listeners, Greg, are you guys excited about T-Bone finishing Bob Dylan songs and a bunch of people covering them? Are these marketing gimmicks getting you excited about any of this new music that's coming soon? Give us a call on the Sound Opinions hotline, 888-859-1800. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Greg Cott, he's Jim DeRogatis, and that, of course, is Duran Duran with Rio from 1982, an iconic track by an iconic band, and one that really captures a specific time and place. When you hear that song, you're immediately taken back to the 1980s and to New Wave. And heck, even David Lynch is a fan, Greg, with a concert film coming out next month, Duran Duran Unstaged. Now, like disco, to which New Wave owes a little bit of credit, this is not an era of music that gets a lot of respect. It's usually relegated to 80s flashback radio and nostalgia video channels. 
But as our next guest, Lori Majewski, would assert, there's more to New Wave than one-hit wonders and weird hairdos. That's right, Greg. With her new book, Mad World, an oral history of New Wave artists and the songs that define the 1980s, Lori and her co-author, Jonathan Bernstein, take us back to this colorful time through interviews with Simon LeBon, Adam Ant, Gary Newman, and many more to find out why this music caused such a splash with listeners and the media. Lori Majewski, welcome to Sound Opinions. Oh, hello. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you. Lori, let's start with your definition of new wave. After reading your book, Greg and I were talking about how when we think of new wave, we think of the era just after punk in New York. The talking heads, the cars, skinny ties. But you and your co-author Jonathan Bernstein focus on the UK, where new wave meant something slightly different. Yes, people in the UK don't really love the term new wave. To them, it may mean more, like you said, skinny ties like Elvis, Costello, even Talking Heads. Over in the UK, they called it new pop. Mm. And um, we really define it as the time from, say, right post-punk, like 1977, 78, through until Band-Aid and Live Aid, we see as the end of the era. And it was a time that really it feels like record companies and record label people were off duty because they let <laughs> they mm. let these bands do whatever they wanted there were no A&R guys there were no wardrobe stylists at this point these punks they wanted something else punk um as you know in the UK lasted really only for about a year and the people who were the original punks they got bored really quickly especially when the masses embraced punk like they did so they were looking for for an outlet and bands like like Joy Division formed in modern English. On the one hand, they were like the more rock-driven bands. And then you had, on the other, punks like Gary Newman and the guys in the Human League saying, you know what, we're going to go in the direction of craft work. You started by saying that this this era doesn't get a lot of respect. And I can tell you, Durannies do not get a lot of respect. Growing up in Weehawken, New Jersey, all I wanted in my whole life was to meet Duran Duran. And, and you know, I was reading smash hits and star hits at the time, and I thought oh, gosh, maybe if I became a journalist, I can actually fulfill that dream of meeting John Taylor and Simon Le Bon, Nick Rhodes. You know, we here in the United States, we didn't have the full effect of David Bowie or I hadn't ever heard of Roxy Music. So when Gary Newman appears on my television set on MTV, one of the very first videos I ever saw was Cars. I thought he was the most original thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was like space aliens had landed in my home. That's what it was like. And, and it, it was the music, the sound, the audio, but it was also the visual. And I think that's why it, it shook me up the way it did. So the three ingredients here really, like you said earlier, new technology, the synthesizers coming in, this particular the digital synthesizers, a new audience, right? Punk had shown the record companies that there was a new young audience out there that didn't want, you know, the Allman Brothers anymore or Yes or Genesis. There was something new in the air, but hopefully they could be managed a little easier than those nasty sex pistols. And then this new technology, MTV, a platform for this stuff. Right. It was a total accident because if there had been ample videos for the likes of REO Speedwagon, we really would never have seen these weird guys coming over from the UK wearing eyeliner and lipstick. They were looking to alternative radio. They're like, oh, my gosh, maybe we should start playing the stuff that channels like K-Rock in L.A. and L.I.R. here in New York. Maybe we should be playing those videos. You know, in the 
indie underground that was happening just down the hill from you, from from Weehawk and in Maxwell's and such, right? This stuff was considered very commercial, but it was revolutionary in a different way. Suddenly people of alternative sexualities are showing up on your TV. There's a quote in the book from Alison Moyer of Yaz that crystallizes it for me, and she says, looking back the 80s, there was so much more room for diversity. A freak was more celebrated than it is now. And from this distance now, you know, Bob Moldenpole, Westerberg are freaks just like uh, Alison Moyer, or dare I say it, that guy in A Flock of Seagulls. Well, in the UK, which is where Alison is from, you had the whole club scene that really embraced the New Romantic era. And the New Romantic, that was like a year over in the UK. But you had Spandau Ballet that was the house band for the Blitz, which was kind of like, you know, a couple of years past Studio 54 here in New York. They had people dressing up like they were like Greek goddesses and, and guys wearing makeup. And suddenly after that Blitz club became so popular, all around the UK, you had mini Blitz clubs. And that's how Duran Duran came to be. You know, you had Birmingham wanting to be that way as well. And, and so actually Spandau Ballet came before Duran Duran. And, and in a lot of ways, maybe Duran wouldn't even exist if not for Spandau Ballet paving that way for them. So true, funny how it seems, always in time, but never in line for dreams. Head over heels when toe to toe, this is the sound of my soul. In your book, you go through some of the iconic bands and songs of 80s New Wave, and Greg and I are going to add a couple more to that list later on. But let's start with Duran Duran. You call yourself a uh, Durani, unapologetic about it. Why are they so special, and what holds up today? Well, as we say in the book, they are the Rolling Stones of this era. Here we are, 30-something years later. They're still recording. And it's interesting, for a long time, as I said earlier, Duranis were kind of like, you know— we we didn't get any respect. We the, we were the Rodney Dangerfield of fans. You know, when I loved the Smiths, everybody was like, oh, your literary quotient goes up when you love the Smiths. There, <laughs> there was nothing, you know, I didn't get any, I didn't get slagged off for loving the Smiths. But for Duran, it was one of those things that it took years for pop culture to come around to them. And I remember it at, at some time in the mid-2000s, you had Justin Timberlake wanting to work with them and Timbaland. And you had um, Gwen Stefani and No Doubt saying that they had been such an influence. And suddenly the culture had come around to them. And so now, all these years later, you know, there were guys at the show. I remember when you'd go to a show and the only guy that was there was a dad. People have really realized that beyond the pretty boy good looks and the great videos were some of the best songs to come out of the 80s for sure. 
combined the grit of a guitar band and coming out of punk. They they had a really strong guitar um, and drums going coming into it. You know, right away that first album, that first render and album is is very tight. And John Taylor says in the book, you know, they modeled their rhythm section after Chic and after the sound and vision from Bowie. And that's why they came to work with someone like Nile Rodgers, you know, mid through the 80s on Wild Boys and The Reflex. Duran Duran is Mark Ronson's favorite band. And he said, working with them, you're just reminded they, they are just such good musicians, every single one of them. He basically says, you know, this isn't a song about sex. It is sex. <laughs> that's a key point, because punk was not sexy. You know, everybody in punk went as far out of their way as possible to not be sexy. And now here was, two years later, this, this band that, these bands that were all about sex. Well, they wanted to be pop stars. Adam Ant, he was one of the original punks. In fact, Sex Pistols opened up for his band. And even he, as the headliner that night, was so taken with the Sex Pistols that he was like, wow, I'm going to change this thing up. But a year later, they were sick of the spitting. They were sick of the safety pins. They thought it was dirty. And they wanted to be pop stars. And, and um, you know, Adam Ant went to his label and was like, you know, we want girls to like us. We want to write pop songs. And they were like, wait, that's not cool. In the end, they sold so many records. You know, Adam Ant went from kind of being a punchline, I mean, no one wanted to sign him as a punk, to being this huge pop star that really paved the way for a lot of the bands in this book. continue our fond look back at 1980s New Wave with Lori Majewski after a quick minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, Jim and I review the latest album from the always outspoken singer, Sinead O'Connor. Dola 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's the 1982 hit Only You by Yaz. We're talking about New Wave with our guest author, Lori Majewski, and her new book is Mad World, which gives an oral history of that era. Now, Lori, Yaz or Yazoo was a British synth-pop duo, but it was the female singer, Alison Moyet, who really stood out. And a woman being able to do that in that era was pretty rare. It's true that New Wave was in many ways edgier and more progressive than other traditional rock and pop on the radio at the time, but looking back, it's really male-dominated. And with a group like Duran Duran, you had a lot of people calling them sexist or exploitative, especially when it came to the videos. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, first of all, I take total issue with Duran Duran being misogynist. If you look at the Rio video, the girl that plays Rio gets the best of them every time. You know, they're trying to act all sexy. She's the one <laughs> that's throwing the ball that makes Simon LeBon fall into the ocean. You know, he, she's the one that, that catches Roger Taylor in the net. But I think Allison's right that back in the 80s, there was more room for, for women to be expressionist, uh, to be who they were without taking their clothes off. Beyonce, I love her. She's fantastic. But at the end of the day, like every time I see her on the MTV Video Awards, she's not wearing very much. Mm. You know, when I think back to the women of New Wave, I think of Annie Lennox, who was dressing in drag alongside, of course, Boy George in drag. You had Alison Moyet. You had, even though the women in Bananarama were gorgeous, they were not about taking their clothes off. And that's something I think we've really gotten away from. And by the way, they even put their own clothes on. You know, today we think Rihanna looks fantastic when she shows up at the Fashion Awards in this see-through dress. But I'm sure she didn't pick that dress out. She has a wardrobe stylist. You know, these artists were their own creations. No one told Adamant how to look to wear that white stripe across his face. And and that's the difference. I think nowadays we have people whose entire jobs it is to outfit pop stars. We were talking about synths earlier. Let's talk about another band, Human League. You mentioned them. In my biography of Lester Banks, many people have remarked upon the fact that uh, Dare was the album that was on Lester's turntable when he died. You know, as if Human League <laughs> killed Lester Banks. You know, I actually think he would have liked it. I remember buying the Don't You Want Me Baby single with seconds on the B-side. I loved it. You were working as a waitress in a the Human League were two completely different groups. I mean, we give the story of the very beginning with being boiled and and along with warm leatherette and craft work, that's the beginning of the New Wave era. But of course, by the time Human League reached our shores in my teenage years, it was an ABBA-esque band with this, you know, Don't You Want Me song that was such a juggernaut. song really brought new wave to America. 
I think Lester would have loved it because he was very forward thinking. And um, that's what New Wave was. When you think about New Order and Blue Monday and how that changed the face of music. And by the way, Bernard Sumner says in the book, the way they made that song, they needed a, quote, scientist to program the sequencers. I mean, this was this was not easy stuff. I think um, New Wave gets a lot of shtick because of the synthesizer, because it's not real sounds. It's not someone physically playing a guitar. But, you know, what Vince Clark did to program the music for early Depeche Mode There were no sounds presets in those keyboards back in the day. This was truly forward-thinking stuff. We're talking with Laurie Majewski about New Wave here on Sound Opinions. And Laurie, obviously on one end of the serious artist spectrum, you've got Human League and Yaz, groups with lots of substance and still lauded by critics. And then, on the other hand, you have AHA, which is basically the epitome of a one-hit wonder. And when people talk about the disposable nature of some of this music, they may think of a band like AHA. Uh, I do believe they have Norway's one and only still international chart hit <laughs> with Take On Me. They actually had a 20-something year career. But maybe a band like Kajagugu, which actually only put out <laughs> one record, Too Shy. Shy, produced by Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran. And we ended up giving them a ton of pages in this book. They just had a very dramatic story. They kicked their singer, Lamal, out at the height of their fame. I mean, what band does that? When you think, oh, one hit wonder, but that one hit was one of the greatest bass lines of any new wave song. So I like to think that even, you know, the one hit wonders in this book have a lot of merit. Some of these stories are so poignant because as you look at it now, as we look at the, the dying carcass rotting of the music industry, you know, this was the kind of the last gasp of the big old we'll sign you, we'll make you a star, and then we'll dispose of you and you won't have had made a dime, you know, of it. Right? New wave musician after new wave musician just told you about how it was this great ride and then it was over and now they're like get, working at Jiffy Loop. <laughs> well, um, 30 years on, a lot of these guys, I don't think that they're working at Jiffy Lube, but as Chris Butler from The Waitresses recently told me, he couldn't put his kid through Harvard, but he could put him through at, you know, a decent state school. <laughs> I know what boys like. I know what guys want. I know what boys like. I got what boys like. 
You mentioned the longevity of some of these songs. You know, a great example of that is a band you write about extensively in the book, Tears for Fears. Gary Jules' cover of Mad World completely revived that song, but also brought the band back into prominence. Now they're once again together and, and, and uh, recording some new music. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces, bright and early for their daily are filling up their glasses no expression no expression what i find so interesting about that band is that they didn't talk for 10 years right after sowing the seeds of love after being together for like 15 years you know it's hard when you're in a duo you only can hate the other person after a while and um, that's what happened. And, and it's interesting. It took at least 10 years for Kurt and Roland to start talking again. And I think that the Gary Jules version really helped to make them realize what a strong back catalog they have. People run in circles. It's a very, very mad I think they paled in comparison with some critics to, uh, say, Morrissey or Pet Shop Boys. You know, they, they were did these heavy songs, melancholy vibe. You know, they were uh, advocates of primal scream therapy, I guess. But now you look back and you go, man, a lot of this stuff was pretty catchy. And uh, Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith are kind of now, I think, getting some late career recognition as these better-than-average songwriters. To me, Tears for Fears is a very different band than Duran Duran. Did you appreciate them in their time? I did. I remember thinking they were quite sullen. <laughs> um, and I do remember thinking that, I mean, that record, Songs from the Big Chair, was one of probably the biggest album of any of these bands. Um, and I remember thinking they were very played out, that Shout was all over the radio. Shout, shout. Years later, I mean, now, does a week go by that I don't hear Everybody Wants to Rule the World on the radio? No, and I never turn the station. The fact that that song is as new today to me as it was 30 years ago really says what a great band they are. I mean, very different from Duran Duran, for sure. But, it, oh, it's actually, it's pretty interesting. When I was talking to Roland Orzabal, he said that he was listening to the radio and Girls on Film was actually on the radio when he sat down to write Mad World. Hmm. And he thought, what a, you know, why is that such an, that's such an upbeat song, you know, Girls on Film, and here I am writing this sad, sullen song. And, 
And that's the thing. You have to remember there were two very different band types of bands to come out of New Wave. You had the very upbeat, colorful bands like Duran Duran, like Culture Club. And then you had these bands like New Order and Tears for Fears. I mean, New Order, yes, it's a dance, it, they're a dance band, but those lyrics are dark. So some bands, they responded to the 80s and Thatcherism and, you know, the constant threat of nuclear annihilation. Hmm. They responded to it with, well, we're going to dance through it. You know, and some, like Tears for Fears, were like, we don't see what there is to be so happy about. <laughs> You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're taking a much welcome trip back to the 1980s new wave scene. Laurie, I know this is your co-author Jonathan Bernstein's area of expertise. He wrote a book called Pretty in Pink about teen movies in the 80s. But bands like OMD and Simple Minds, they wouldn't have existed for Americans above and beyond MTV without director John Hughes. You know, Greg and I got to interview him once, and he was such a huge music fan, Laurie. You know, from buying underground weird imports at Chicago's Wax Tracks record store to really hearing pop singles like If You Leave and putting them on his soundtrack. OMD, that was one of Molly Ringwald's favorite bands. And um, John Cryer's, too. And, and they brought OMD to John Hughes and were like, you need to get into this. And I also find it interesting that a lot of times you name um, a movie company comes along and says, oh, you should name your movie after this song and we'll put it on the soundtrack, etc. It was actually not like that at all with Pretty in Pink. John Hughes was inspired to write the movie by the psychedelic first song. Mm-hmm. I mean, a very different themed movie. It was much more happy than the song is. John Hughes' classic, The Breakfast Club, heavily featured Don't You Forget About Me. I think if you're thinking about one Simple Minds song that you're going to hear on radio today, that is the one. And that owes everything to the 1985 movie. Don't you forget about me. They did everything they could to fight to not have to record that song. Um, you know, Billy Idol famously was supposed to record that song, and then he got into the, the motorcycle wreck and could not. It was rumored that Brian Ferry was going to record that song. Jim Kerr said to us during our interview that he had asked Brian and said that that wasn't true. But in the end, they relented, and, and they were like, they never wanted to record it because they felt, A, they didn't write it, B, it didn't sound like them. But when Jim got into the studio, he made the song his own. I mean, all those hip, 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 Mm. hip, and all that, (laughs) that's him. Hey, 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 
Lori, uh, you know, you've covered music for years, but you also co-founded and edited Teen People. So you're a professional observer of, quote-unquote, what the kids like for much of this new millennium. How does your knowledge and love of uh, New Wave in the 80s inform your understanding of current teen music? And I guess what I'm saying is, in my book, Justin Bieber ain't no Nick Rhodes, is what I'm getting at. <laughs> um. See, the big problem with today's pop scene is that we have taught, as pop culture, we have taught burgeoning pop stars that they need the approval of a TV talent show host, a Simon Cowell, to come along and say, we anoint you. You can now go forth and be a musician. And no one told Adamant. In fact, everyone was telling Adamant not to do it. You know, no one was signing him. And he kept pushing and he kept pushing until he was like, you know what? I'm going to be famous whether you like it or not. All right, so Lori, we've been having a good time going through Mad World with you, getting to play some of your favorites, talking about some of your favorite bands. Greg and I, though, being rock critics, we have to insert ourselves here, and we want to talk about two of our favorites, one, one each. I cannot understand how you could have left Culture Club's Karma Chameleon out of Mad World. <laughs> What I loved about this song is that, to me, it kind of draws on that weird English tradition of psychedelic folk music with the upbeat Caribbean lilt that Culture Club would have. And everybody loved it, you know, because there's this notion that there was the cool underground music, but then there was also the hit music. I remember seeing the Feelies in their Willies mode, which was their ambient Eno thing, and they fade really slowly. You know, it would take them 60 seconds to fade out live a song. And then all of a sudden from the jukebox in the front room comes Karma Chameleon. And everybody in the room started singing along. It was like perfect. (laughs) We love the weird art rock Sonic Youth Feelies. We love Karma Chameleon and Boy George. George wasn't even a singer. I mean, the guy was working in the coat room at the Blitz, and he has one of the most memorable, gorgeous, lush voices of the 80s. I mean, that's, again, another accident that we're so happy happened. Let's go to uh, one of my picks. Jim had mentioned at the top, you know, my my terminology for New Wave was the skinny tie bands, and uh, it was primarily guitar-based rock, kind of like the next permutation of punk, sort of a 
a lighter, poppier version of punk rock that could be sold to commercial programmers, Not more radio-friendly, yeah. right. And it was interesting because the Cars debut album came out, like, I think right after punk debuted in the United States. It really started to gain some traction. And then, lo and behold, here comes the Cars debut. And a song like Just What I Needed, and I thought, this is just a shiny version. It's kind of it's, it's the same basic idea, the, the conciseness, the hooks, the melodies, but also in a more shiny format. And they, you know, they combined the guitar, bass with the synthesizer. You know, you had both things going on at the same time. But I'm curious about, the book is very UK-centric, focusing on that sort of so-called second British invasion, I think, in a lot of ways. But, you know, there was that new wave scene in the U.S. too with, with bands like The Cars. How, where do they fit into that world with you? Well, I love The Cars, and I ran into Paulina Porskova, of course, still married to the singer all these years later. And I said, I really want to interview The Cars. And, and she did try, do everything she could to set that up. But they were they were touring at the end of last summer, and I just couldn't get them on the phone. I think that, you know, out of Boston, totally iconic band. Um, they only got bigger as the 80s went on. I don't mind you hanging out and talking in your things I wanted to ask you guys is is about New Wave. We started by you saying that it didn't get a lot of respect from rock critics. You guys being the rock critics, we've just spent a lot of time talking about the merits mm-hmm. of this of this time period. I mean, the cars are such a great band. What do you th- why do you think so many of these bands, why don't they get the respect they deserve? I think it had a lot to do with the MTV influence and the and the emphasis on the visual. I think uh, a lot of people sort of looked askance at that, like the you know they're pretty boys and they're pop, and therefore they couldn't be authentic enough, you know. Which is a silly, you know. In retrospect, you look back on some of that and you go, "That's a very boyish criterion to apply," you know. Like, uh, you know, suddenly we were cooler than these bands for some reason. I think in retrospect, you do appreciate the songwriting. I have to admit, I, I had records like Haircut 100 and A Flock of Seagulls, and I, I, I hear those songs, and they don't sound bad to me. I mean, I still, I still don't mind hearing them. When you think back to A Flock of Seagulls, we think of a haircut. We laugh at it, but 
At the core is this fantastic driving sound. If you love music, you were able to embrace this very weird, wonderful, experimental time that, yes, was visual, and videos came along, but those were part of the, the fun. Those were part of the art projects. I mean, David Bowie had videos. Majewski is the co-author of Mad World, an oral history of new wave artists and the songs that define the 1980s. Laurie, thanks for chatting with us on Sound Opinions. Oh, this was amazing. Thank you. For more new wave listening, check out our playlist at Beats Music. And we want to hear from you. What music do you fondly remember from this era? And why do you think it doesn't get its due? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up, Irish singer Sinead O'Connor is back making waves and making music. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that is Sinead O'Connor with a song called Take Me to Church from her 10th studio album, I'm Not Bossy, I'm the Boss. Now, Sinead O'Connor, people know a couple of things about her, mostly not related at all to her music. She's the woman with the shaved head that came out in the 80s. She's the one that tore up that picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live in protest of the Catholic Church's child molestation scandal, essentially self-sabotaged her career in the process. But along the way, she's traveled a very individual and idiosyncratic path through the music world. She made a stunning 1987 debut, The Lion and the Cobra, and followed it with I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, one of the biggest albums of the 1990s, a hit cover version of Prince's Nothing Compares to You that made her a star. And then she immediately made a left turn. There was a record that came out called Am I Not Your Girl in 1992, which was basically a collection of torch ballads and vintage pop standards. And I talked to her about that later on. She said it was basically a red herring. I just wanted to throw people off the path because I, was, I had no interest in being a pop star. 
in the 2000s, she's followed that credo. She's made very personal albums, an entire album of traditional Irish music honoring her heritage, going from that to a hardcore reggae album. She's been a longtime fan and advocate of that style of music. Now she's got her 10th studio album. It's I'm Not Bossy, I'm the Boss. She changed the name of the album at the last minute, apparently. It was originally going to be called The Vishnu Room to I'm Not Bossy, I'm the Boss as a nod to that Ban Bossy campaign by uh, Facebook COO Cheryl Sandberg. Here's a track from the new album. It's called Eight Good Reasons from Sinead O'Connor on Sound Opinions. You know I don't much like life. I don't mind admitting that it ain't right. You know I love to make music, but my head got wrecked by the business. Everybody wants something from me. They rarely ever want to just know me. That is Eight Good Reasons by Sinead O'Connor from her new album, The Tenth of Her Career. I'm not bossy, I'm the boss. I just love that title, Greg. Yep. And I love the line in that song where Sinead sings, You know I love to make music, but my head got wrecked by the business. You were talking about some of the Sinead controversies. There was that recent one where she was feuding on Facebook with Miley Cyrus, trying to tell her to hold on to herself in the midst of the pop whirlwind, the machinery eating her up, spitting her out. That is a common theme for Sinead. She talks about that. She talks again about the Irish church keeping women down. She talks about all the heavy things she's been talking about throughout her career. She is consistent, but I think she's having fun on this record, as much fun as Sinead ever can have. This is produced by John Reynolds, her former husband, used to play drums with her, and he's also worked with people like Belinda Carlisle, okay, of the Go-Go's. This is a pop record. This may throw people who've been listening to Sinead play traditional Irish folk music and reggae in this new century, her last couple of records, but this is her going pop, and that extends to the album cover, where she's dressed up as some sort of glam diva dominatrix. Surprisingly, you know, it's not something she's cared about, her image, for a long time. I think she just wanted to make a pop record, despite her having told you, I never wanted to make a pop record, because she's Sinead and she can do anything she wants, including paying tribute to James Brown with Fela Kute's son on one track. I think this is a really good album with only one misstep, that Vishnu Room song. I'm glad she didn't name the album title that. It's, it's a very enthusiastic buy it for me. 
Jim, I think there's more than one mistake on this record. In fact, I think almost the entire first half of this album is a mistake. I thought I was listening to the wrong album at first. After looking at that title and that album cover with, as you said, that sort of dominatrix look, I was expecting something really feisty and in your face, and what I got was an adult pop record. I mean, I hear this kind of record all the time and, and don't want to ever hear it again. No. And the record only picks up steam in the last half. And then the old Sinead is back. I'm hearing that feistiness again, that intensity. Whether she's singing ballads or whether she's playing in a more of an aggressive rock mode, there's always that intensity and that passion there that Sinead can bring at her best. And I'm finally hearing that on uh, songs like The Voice of My Doctor and especially that track Harbor which I think is one of the best things she's done. She sought for something holy Found early the dreams of John Quixote Fighting to get back what's stolen Thinking pain could be plastered over Those tracks for me redeem this record. Otherwise, the first half of this record is really, really bad. As a result of the comeback she makes in the second half, I'm going to give it a try it rating. Well, that's a try it from Greg. I couldn't agree with him less. I think the whole album is pretty great. A buy it from me. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a rising blues punk star in the studio, Benjamin Booker. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Anthony Martinez. And our intern is Sam Taylor. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, I'm Andrew Missile from Tallahassee, Florida. I'm calling about the rock opera show. I gotta say, I completely agree with Jim about the Who. I, I like a lot of their '60s stuff, or the mod stuff, but by the time you get into the '70s, and especially in the rock operas, I think they're just totally ridiculous. And I'm so glad you mentioned "Love Rain Over Me." first time I heard it, I had to pull the car over because I was laughing so hard. I thought it was a meatloaf impersonator. It's just such a ridiculous song. It's so bloated. The only good thing I can say about it is, you know, I don't know if this is true or not, but it seems like the kind of bloated crap that inspired punk to come out and just sort of put a pin in that balloon. So I guess I have to thank The Who for maybe helping to inspire punk, but that song is just absolutely ridiculous and terrible. Hi, this is Bradley uh, in Chicago. I really liked your rock opera episode, and I just wanted to call in to uh, say that my personal favorite rock opera is Joe's Garage by Frank Zappa. And what I find really fascinating about that album, 
for as chaotic and random that Zappa's discography can be, Joe's Garage is a really cohesive story. And I found it really fascinating to follow the journey of this young man discovering music and all the negative consequences as a result of following a career in music. And I was reading that it finds its roots in Zappa being inspired by the Iranian Revolution in 1979. So, very, very cool stuff. Turn it down, we were slaying the same old song In the afternoon And sometimes we were playing all night long It was all we knew And easy to, so we wouldn't get it wrong Even if you played it on the saxophone Hi, I love the show tonight. My name is Val Blaha. I wanted to say that my favorite rock opera is The Ballad of Sally Rose by Emily Harris. I don't think I heard that one mentioned. So if you haven't heard those guys, you should check them out. Her mama picked him up in South Minnesota He promised her the world But they never got that far But he was last seen In the 59 soda And Sally was born In the Black Hills of Dakota uh, Jim and Greg, hi, this is Scott from Minneapolis Hey, I just enjoyed your um, show on rock operas One of my favorite genres and you mentioned that your definition of rock and a lot of the things that you cover are fairly broad-based. But I'll mention one other one that might fall into the category of rock opera. One is Stevie Wonder, Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants. Kind of ambitious, not a great hit of his, but uh, quite enjoyable. I enjoy the show. Thank you. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. I can't conceive the nucleus of all begins inside.